Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers, where we provide you with up-to-date information on cancer care and research. Our host, Dr. Anise Chagpar, is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. She interviews some of the nation's leading oncologists and cancer specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. If you are interested in past editions of Yale Cancer Center Answers, all of the shows are posted on the Yale Cancer Center website at YaleCancerCenter.org. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can contact the doctors directly. The address is canceranswers at yale.edu. Here's Dr. Chagpar. Welcome back to another episode of Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. David Hafler. Dr. Hafler is the William S. and Lois Stiles Edgerly Professor of Neurology, Professor of Immunobiology, and Neurologist-in-Chief of Yale New Haven Hospital. He's here with me to discuss the immunology behind glioblastomas. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Hafler, maybe we should start off by talking a little bit about glioblastomas. What exactly are they? Well, they are uh, an interesting type of tumor. Uh, unlike other tumors, which often uh, spread, metastasize through the body, uh, glioblastomas uh, begin uh, in the brain, in the central nervous system, uh, and generally stay there. Uh, they are very infiltrative. Uh, people ask, well, why don't you just remove them? Um, and unlike metastatic tumors, uh, where you can just sometimes remove them, take them out, it's impossible to remove a glioblastoma because it just uh, infiltrates uh, into the brain. Hmm. And so how common are these? Uh, it's one of the most common uh, tumors uh, of the central nervous system. Uh, I myself, my, my father-in-law, uh, passed away uh, from a glioblastoma. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, at the age of 63. Mm. Uh, and so it's something which has really struck our, our family, and I've had a number of very close friends uh, who've died from this tumor. So it's not an uncommon tumor at all. Hmm. And so because we can't surgically remove it, um, how exactly do we treat this? Uh, well, I mean to say I'm not a neuro-oncologist. I'm a neuroimmunologist. Uh, but we generally used, uh, used radiation therapy and uh, drugs which are, uh, inhibit the growth of, of, the, uh, of the tumor. But you know, I sort of left the field of neurology for about 25 years as I pursued my interest in immunology and immunology of the nervous system. Uh, then I came back uh, uh, to the field of clinical neurology when I became chair of neurology here at Yale. And uh, I was surprised at the advances in stroke. Uh, we can now remove clots from the brain uh, in real time and dissolve the clots. In my own field of um, multiple sclerosis, we've had dramatic advances in understanding the, disease, understanding the disease and treating the disease very effectively. When I looked at, at brain tumors, at glioblastomas, I found that we really hadn't progressed much uh, since I was a resident uh, at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, New York Hospital back in the late uh, 70s, early 80s. Uh, we really uh, hadn't really changed the prognosis for brain tumors very much. It was a bit sad to see. Mm -hmm. And so what have been the new advances? I mean, and how did you marry your interest in immunology and in the immune system of 
actually the nervous system into really treating brain cancers in a much more advanced way. Well, let me uh, perhaps give a disclosure in that uh, as an immunologist uh, who studies the nervous system uh, and autoimmunity, we felt that immune system was important for autoimmune diseases, and that turns out to be correct. That wasn't terribly surprising. It's not surprising at all. The big surprise, and I didn't see this, I think most of us didn't see this, was how important the immune system would be uh, for dealing with cancer. So when you have a viral infection uh, or a cell becomes mutated, it is the immune system which recognizes that something has gone awry with self uh, or with a foreign infection and uh, eliminates that, uh, that cell that's infected or gets rid of that cancer cell. And uh, we just hadn't appreciated as a discipline how important that was. And I'll give credit for, for Jim Allison, who's a very dear friend, who really championed the idea uh, of uh, immunotherapy for cancer, uh, first for his brother who uh, died from prostate cancer, and then Jim himself, who's very public about this, who developed prostate cancer uh, and really was instrumental in developing uh, anti-CTLA-4 as a treatment. So the question is, why do these immunotherapies work? With metastatic melanoma, the um, five-year survival rate, if you had melanoma that spread through your body, used to be at 1%. Now, with these checkpoint inhibitors, uh, the survival rate is well over 50%, maybe even higher. So the question is, uh, how are these drugs really working? Mm -hmm. And it it turns out that there's a cat-and-mouse game between the immune system and the tumors. And in fact, the same cat-and-mouse game goes on uh, with, with, with viruses. And what the viruses want to do and what the cancers want to do is to evade the immune system. And, and the way they do this, be it viruses uh, or cancer, is to, uh, is to express these decoy molecules that turn off the immune system. So that is, when you look at the response uh, of immune cells uh, to an infection or to, uh, or, or to, let's say you do a vaccination, you want a response where the immune cells recognize, the, let's say, the vaccine you're injecting, and so you make a memory response. But then, then you want to turn off the T cells. You want them to, uh, to expand, to have memory. And then you want them to turn off. If they don't turn off, then uh, you have unrestricted growth of, of immune cells. And that's another form of cancer. So the way the immune system does this is that it expresses these negative inhibitory receptors on the cell. And when they're expressed, the T cells are then signaled to turn off. And that's how the immune system works. You have signals which turn on the T cells, the co-stimulatory signals, and then you have signals which turn them off, and the co-inhibitory signals. And what the cancer does is very clever. It keeps mutating until it expresses an inhibitory receptor. So when the T cells, the immune cells, go to the tumor, they're expressing these inhibitory these inhibitory decoys, which tell the immune system, stop, turn off, when, in fact, you want the immune system to kill the tumor cells. Mm-hmm. And that's this cat-and-mouse game. And what's happened in immunotherapy is, first, the understanding of what these important molecules might be, um, such as uh, CTLA-4 
and PD-1, which are the two now classic negative inhibitory receptors on T cells. And what we now do is we block them. We take these, these proteins engineered in the laboratory called monoclonal antibodies. We inject them into the body, and they bind to the T cells, the part of T cells involved in turning off immune responses, and we fool the cancers. And so now the T cells can kill the cancers. And that's really what immunotherapy is about. So... So does that work in all cancers? I mean, it seems to me that some cancers respond really well to immunotherapies and other ones might not. Is that Ab- true? Absolutely true. And so we talked about these two checkpoint inhibitors, CTLA-4, which was discovered many years ago, and uh, PD-1. But there are many other checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, as someone who studies autoimmunity, I've been very interested in a molecule called TIGIT, T-I-G-I-T, hmm. another one called TIM3. And in fact, my dear colleague and friend, uh, who um, uh, uh, is a colleague from Boston, uh, discovered TIM3, and uh, we've been partnering understanding its function in, in human systems and human cancers over the past few years. So every organ has its own cadre of inhibitory and stimulatory signals. And the key, I think, is to understand what they are for each cancer. Each cancer will evade the immune system in a different way. So we're just at very early stages uh, with these checkpoint inhibitors. So, for example, a recent experiment we did was to compare glioblastomas to multiple sclerosis Mm -hmm. and ask, well, in glioblastomas, the T cells, the immune cells, are going to the brain, and they can't kill the tumor. Whereas in multiple sclerosis, the T cells go to the brain, and they destroy the myelin. So it's the opposite. So we ask, what's different between multiple sclerosis and glioblastomas in terms of these uh, inhibitory receptors? And we found that PD-1 wasn't all that different. Hmm. It was expressed in MS, and it was expressed in glioblastoma, same for CTLA-4. But this TIGIT was expressed on virtually all of the immune cells infiltrating the glioblastoma, infiltrating the brain tumor. Yet, it was virtually absent on the T cells going into the brain with MS. So we are soon, hopefully, to start a phase one trial with TIGIT in glioblastoma and we're studying it very deeply in MS. So I I think we have to identify which tumors are evading uh, the immune system uh, as a means of survival, because maybe some tumors use other means of survival and immunotherapy won't work, point one. And point two, which mechanism, which molecules each tumor uses to actually uh, evade detection by the immune system, and different tumors will be different. So we have these dramatic results in melanoma, dramatic results in certain types of lung cancers. And what about brain tumors? We don't know yet. We did a trial with anti-PD-1, anti-CTLA-4, a phase one trial here at Yale for glioblastomas. And all I can say is that Bristol-Myers Squibb was intrigued enough with the results to move to a phase three clinical trial, which has just begun last week, Mm. where we're using uh, anti-PD-1 in a phase three trial in patients who were previously untreated with glioblastoma. But if the PD-1 is the same in glioblastoma as it is in MS, 
do we really think that there's going to be a positive outcome of that trial? Well, uh, it's too early to say. Uh, it's not going to work. Clearly, it's not going to work in everyone. Right. Uh, but the question is, uh, by PD-1, will we have some patients who are using PD-1? Because we did see PD-1 there. Yeah. Uh, are there some tumors which are using PD-1 wh- who will respond dramatically to the, uh, uh, to the therapy? Uh, but I think it's just the first effort, and I think we need to, we clearly need to define other co-stimulatory molecules. And TIGIT, TIM3, PD-1, LAG3, the whole host of, of, of co-inhibitory receptors that have recently been identified uh, as human immunologists, uh, which have potential for being used in treating these diseases. So we're at the very beginning mm-hmm. of immunotherapy. And um, the, the, the discovery of a number of these molecules, Li Ping Chen discovered anti-PD-1. Uh, we've been very involved, as said, in TIM3 and in, in TIGIT. And this is one of the strongest uh, human immunobiology programs in the country, if not the strongest. And so we have this wonderful interface between basic science discovery and very strong clinicians who are leading the clinical trials in the United States uh, with these different immunotherapies. Is it possible when you biopsy a tumor to see what are the immune checkpoints that are relevant in that tumor so that you can say, for this tumor, we should use an anti-PD-1, but for this one, maybe anti-TIGIT? Uh, just have to, one would think so, but as I understand the recent uh, clinical trial uh, with anti-PD-1 where the PD-1 ligand was measured uh, in lung tumors, uh, it wasn't terribly predictive. Hmm. So there may be other factors involved. But absolutely, uh, finding ways of what has been labeled precision medicine to understand what mechanism the tumor is using for evasion, I think, will will be critical. So, for example, an experiment that we're just beginning uh, in my laboratory uh, is to... is to look at the T cells. We have these new technologies um, where we can interrogate single T cells out of the tumor and out of the blood. Uh, We just recently published a paper in JCI Insight where we identified certain molecules expressed on the surface of cells that are involved in exhaustion, which we normally don't see, but we do see them in the brain tumor. And the notion is that these cells, they're relatively rare, about a half a percent, but these cells that we see in the blood, which have these markers of exhaustion, which we normally don't see, maybe are T cells that were in the brain. And we may have a liquid biopsy where we can Mm -hmm. identify these cells in the blood uh, and have a sense of the functionality and mechanisms that the immune cells are using to evade the tumor. So we just started that experiment. We were getting brain tissue and blood from the same patient, and we're interrogating those tissues to see if indeed that's the case. That's very cool. I guess the other question is that the brain is one of these specialized organs that has a way of keeping things out of it with the blood-brain barrier. And that's always been an issue in terms of chemotherapy, for example. Are we thinking that the same thing is going to hold with immunotherapy, or is that not not the case? I don't think it's the case. And, and the reason being that, uh, so the just to take a step back, what is the blood-brain barrier? Um, in nature, in designing uh, who we are as mammals and 
uh, very careful about what it allows to get into the brain for obvious reasons. So you have what's called the blood-brain barrier. The nature very carefully selects which molecules uh, can cross into the brain, into the central nervous system. So the experiment's simple. If you take a blue dye uh, and inject it uh, in, into the blood, skin turns blue, the liver turns blue, everything turns blue except for the brain. Uh, the brain basically will not change color because the blue dye doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. But that's for proteins. It turns out that cells go right into the brain. Mm. And it's a process where the cells just go right through the blood-brain barrier. And this is important for immune surveillance. If this didn't happen when you had a viral infection in the brain, there'd be no way of the immune system detecting it. In fact, in multiple sclerosis, one of the main treatments we use, a drug called um, an anti-VLA-4 monoclonal antibody called natalizumab or tisabre, which blocks the T-cell traffic from the blood to the brain. But a side effect of that treatment in patients who have a virus called the JC virus, uh, about one out of 200 patients can develop uh, growth of this virus in the brain because the immune system can't do its immune surveillance and look for this virus. And, of course, we're worried that those patients may also have tumors that could potentially grow because, again, the immune surveillance is absolutely critical. So uh, T cells get right in. Now, do the antibodies need to get in? Probably not. Our guess is that the antibodies bind the cells in the periphery. Then when they go in, uh, they can do their function. So I'm not sure the antibody needs to get in. However, with chemotherapies, indeed, it's a major issue. So maybe immunotherapy is particularly well-suited to glioblastoma. Well, we got to do the experiment, yeah. and we'll see. We'll see what the phase three trial shows. But again, it's just the beginning, and we're very excited uh, about moving towards phase one clinical trials with different checkpoint inhibitors, which we hope we can do very soon. Well, that's just so exciting and so wonderful for having uh, you as my guest today on Yale Cancer Center Answers. This was a wonderful discussion about your research in glioblastomas and the promising potential of immunotherapy in this area. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar wishing everyone a happy and healthy tomorrow. This has been another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers. We hope that you have learned something new and meaningful. If you have questions, go to YaleCancerCenter.org for more information about cancer and the resources available to you. We hope that you will join us again for another discussion on the progress being made here and around the world in the fight against cancer.